Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Balthazar. And today, it's the battle for the purple, folks, and also the battle for the top of the Big 12. And that is your Kansas State Wildcats going up against the Texas Christian Horned Frogs. Now, we have a lot to say, so we're just going to dive straight into it. No real time for you know pleasantries, because this episode is probably already going to be an hour and a half long. But let's dive straight in to their offensive stats from the previous year, as well as their record. They were a 5-7 and seven team last year with a 3-6 and six conference record, 2,355 rushing yards at a clip of exactly 5 per attempt, 21 rushing touchdowns, 2,875 passing yards at a clip of 9.27, a 64.5% completion percentage, 19 passing touchdowns to 6 interceptions, a third down percentage of 46.91%, which was good for 11th best in the country, a red zone scoring percentage of 82.6, and then a touchdown percentage of 56.5. 28 sacks allowed, including what should have been six to Felix last year, getting 28.67 points per game and a total of 344.4. So they were a pretty balanced team last year who definitely fell apart towards the back end of the season. And they have an entirely new staff now, but before we go into that, Connor has you for last year's defensive statistics. Yeah, so defensively last year, they gave up a whopping 34.92 points per game for a total of 419 points against them. Passing yards, they gave up 2,877 total and 20 touchdowns. Rushing yards, 2,664 and 34 rushing touchdowns against them. They have a defensive third down percentage last year, 46.5%, which was 124th in FBS. And then a red zone uh, scoring percentage of 70.6%, of 90.2%, I should say, and then a touchdown rate of 70.6%, which was tied for 112th in FBS. Uh, they had 10 interceptions, 7 fumbles recovered, 15 sacks as a defense for a turnover turnover differential of minus two the one of the big things that sticks out there is that uh, they kind of sucked um and (laughs) there's very little else to say other than that other than they were balanced and they're sucking they gave up a lot of pass yards a lot of rush yards uh they gave up a lot of points they were not good on third down they were not good in the red zone they didn't get many sacks they weren't a great unit last year yeah, no, they, they weren't really great last year. But they are having a few notable returners from last year, and that is Max Duggan, their leading passer from last year, who didn't start the year as their starting quarterback. That was OU transfer Chandler Morris. But uh, that's kind of working out for him, and we'll go into that later. And then they returned Kendra Miller, their second leading rusher. They're returning Quentin Johnston, their leading receiver, and an absolute monster. They're also returning Andrew Coker, who, if you remember me last year, I thought he was an amazing right tackle who wasn't getting enough love. Uh, he's fallen off the face of the earth. <laughs> he's, he, I don't know how he regressed so badly, but uh, he did. <laughs> then they're returning D. Winters, who is their leading tackler, Travius Hodges Tomlinson, who is their interception and passes defense leader, and Dylan Horton, who was tied for first in sacks. They're also getting an entirely new staff. 
which includes Sonny Dykes at head coach and much of his staff from SMU. And you can, I'm not going to say you can tell, but uh, you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Obviously been doing great things so far, but um, really they didn't lose a ton. Um, although what they did lose, they were big names. Uh, Zach Evans is the big name. He former five-star recruit at running back. He was their leading rusher. He transferred to Ole Miss, uh, I believe after the, uh, staff changes, uh, in the off season, uh, O'Shawn Mathis sack leader. He ends up transferring to Nebraska. I don't think that's working out too good for, <laughs> I think that's a fair statement to make. <laughs> and, uh, then they also lose Obena Easy, uh, left tackle to graduation. But really, other than that, this team is not losing much from last year. So even if you have a team that was kind of mediocre, they definitely were a talented team last year, at least athletically. Yeah. Um, which I mean, yeah, they do lose Zach Evans, who's having a really nice year at Ole Miss. He's I uh, got six, over 600 yards and seven touchdowns. And O'Shawn Mathis was an excellent pass rusher. But they return a ton, and that's already a team that's pretty athletic across the board, just probably needed some better coaching. Uh, so uh, that's kind of a good position to be in going into a, a year. And a new staff is an excellent situation to walk into. But as for, for this year, Connor, you have the, the schedule, and then I'll – spit more numbers at people with their 2022 stats. Yeah. So very briefly before this season, uh, at least how it's been going, uh, the expectations for TCU going into the year were not high, uh, including at this podcast, including everybody under the face of the earth, probably including TCU fans. Honestly, <laughs> they were not expecting much with the coaching change. And now they are sitting at six and zero against a quality schedule. Uh, we start with a not quality opponent though. <laughs> um, we have at Colorado to start the year, uh, where they end up winning 38 13, and they actually do lose uh, their starting quarterback in this game, Chandler Morris, uh, which leads the way for former starter Max Duggan, uh, to start the following game against uh, Tarleton, and they blow out Tarleton 59 17. Uh, throw all over the field. Um, probably not a fair matchup there. Uh, they win the Iron Skillet against SMU, 42-34. Uh, they blow out OU the week after we beat them in Norman. Uh, they go on the road to 5-0 KU and win that game, 38-31. And then they just beat 5-0 Oklahoma State, 43-40. So every team that they have played at the time they played them either had zero losses or one loss. Granted, bit of a misnomer of Colorado because they, <laughs> they hadn't to played this point have one win. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean they didn't play anyone in the, oh, they don't play anybody, Paul. They, no, they literally hadn't played anybody. Yeah, but then they beat an OU team that while they are definitely down, that's still a very athletic and gifted team that is probably going to come around and still have a good year. Uh, they beat an undefeated KU team that had all the momentum in the world uh, on the road at that. And they beat Oklahoma State and an excellent excellent game that you completely if you were not able to see this you really missed out uh so that's been a beyond the wildest dream scenario so far for tcu starting six now 
Absolutely. Which, as we mentioned before, they're six and zero with a three and zero conference record. They have thirteen hundred seventy five rushing yards, six point three per attempt, seventeen hundred eighty five passing yards, nine point two per attempt, sixteen passing touchdowns to one interception, and that one interception was against KU on a whatever end of half ball. And then, yeah, pretty big asterisk next to that. Yeah. 20 rushing touchdowns, a third down percentage on offense of 44.44 repeating percent, which is 43rd in FBS. And then on defense, they're giving up third downs at 38.95% of the time, which is 71st in FBS. And then the big one, points per game. They're averaging 45.83 points per game, which is third in FBS with 275 points for 159 points against a turnover differential of plus five getting 12 sacks a red zone defensive percentage of 89 of 86.9 or defensive i should say 86.9 percent scoring 60.9 percent touchdowns which is a tie for 94th with oklahoma state and then on offense, they're scoring 86.2% of the time and touchdowns are being scored 72.4% of the time, which is 51st in FBS. So this is a notably improved squad. They are, without exaggeration, three touchdowns, passing touchdowns off of their total from last year and one rushing touchdown away from their total from last year. It's yeah. much improved. <laughs> Yeah, almost everything about this team offensively has gotten significantly better uh, from the year prior. Um, and Max Duggan even looks like a completely different quarterback. I've always liked Max Duggan, but I will not lie and act like I figured that he was like capable of a 16 touchdown one pick season through. And with the one pick really kind of being meaningless. I mean, I'd equate it to basically a garbage time. Like, obviously the game was so competitive, but there was like 10 seconds left in the half and they just threw a Hail Mary ball, but only to Quentin Johnston. Mm-hmm. And it just got picked by a lurking safety, yeah. which ultimately had zero effect on the game. So that's a big, big asterisk. But he has been phenomenal. Uh, this year for the most part at least statistically a lot of the help comes from uh, Quentin Johnson existing which we will get to him a little later I suppose but yeah. this offense the offense at TCU right now is humming I I venture to say it's special uh, yeah. what they've been able to do so far yeah and you can take their uh, offensive takeaways and their personnel yeah uh, so one easy thing that you can probably guess is that they are a spread team, uh, kind of similar to some of those mid uh, 20 teens uh, TCU teams that you probably think of when you think of TCU, the Trevon Boykin era of TCU, uh, where they were high tempo, borderline frenetic pace, um, peak Big 12, Big 12. Um, they, however, did not keep that pace. Uh, this year, though, um, they're 73rd in the country in plays per game, averaging 69.6. K-State, uh, for reference, is 14 spots behind, averaging 68.2, which K-State's pace is not phenomenal. Still, like, up by, like, 10 plays per game compared to last year. Yeah, They even had a game where they got, like, into the 80s, I think. Um, 
They do play almost exclusively in a twins and doubles alignment with their receivers. Uh, and when they're not doing that, they're in trips. Um, a part of what a part of what they do is play their receivers in a stack alignment, which is just one lined up directly behind the other. It it is what it looks like. They are stacked but yeah. on each other. It's very simple. Uh, yeah. In order to prevent receivers getting pressed at the line, which we've seen K-State do a little bit of, kind of more bunching, I guess is what K-State's done. But yeah. they do run a lot of stack. Uh, you saw some of that against Oklahoma State. Uh, this forces at least one defensive back to back off, leaving the wide receiver screen game a lot more open. Um, and this offense is very explosive. They are second in the country in yards per play at 7.3 yards per play. They have 23 plays of 30 yards or more, which is tied for third. And they have 850 plus yard plays, which is tied for first. So this team is like a juiced up version of the K-State offense, at least right now in terms of getting those explosive plays, although they are definitely more consistent, but they do rely on explosive plays, at least to a degree. Yeah. Do you uh, want to know who they are tied for first? Sorry. Do you want to know who they are tied for first with in 50 yard plays? Is it something I could easily guess? Probably. Is it Tennessee? No. Is it Bama? It's Ohio State. That, that actually makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> Just fun fact of the day. The more you know. But, uh, and then for personnel, their spread, as we said earlier, uh, they're going to spend most of their time in 10 and 11 personnel, lean towards 10. On uh, 11, the tight end is playing the wing and is primarily a blocker. Uh, they also have a split back look from shotgun that they go to a few times a game. And they played a little 12 personnel against KU, but that was probably just a product of the opponent as opposed to a more consistent philosophy of their offense. And they, pro- they probably just saw something in there uh, that caused them to do so. Yeah, that that's pretty much... Yeah, that's my assessment of them. They're an insanely explosive offense. And to go along with that is just how they call their plays. So despite this being an insanely explosive offense, you know, you hear explosive plays, you automatically think, oh, they're passing the ball like 70% of the time. That's actually not the case. The run pass splits is actually 48.7 to the pass and then 51, 48.3 to the pass and then 51.7 in the run, which granted, a lot of that is RPO screens. So, you know, it's kind of a run play, kind of a pass play, but the split is what the split is. And in the running game, it's just inside zone. Yeah, I, I it's inside zone. I saw them run a counter once. That was cool. It's inside zone. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. It, in terms of play action, they do that on 28.1% of their dropbacks. Screens are the exact same number, which is really funny because not all of their screens are play action. It just happened to work out that way. <laughs> but motion is a part of their game plan, mostly as a coverage indicator sewer, you know, to set up some RPO. And if you're curious about what their favorite passing concepts include, basically here is their entire offense from a passing perspective. Sands like maybe three or four plays. They run a play call concept called Yankee, which is two deep posts to clear for a deep crossing route from the opposite side. Most of the time to Quentin Johnston, because why wouldn't you throw that to Quentin Johnston? (laughs) 
slot fade, which is a variation of smash, which has the outside receiver running a tight curl and the slot receiver running a fade going towards the sideline, meant to pressure that outside corner and put them in a bad spot. Sail, which is also called flood in a lot of other vernaculars. The outside receiver runs a go to clear for a deep out from the slot receiver. And then stick, which is from trips or twins. The innermost receiver runs a hitch. Sometimes it's an option route that can turn into an out. The second outside receiver or a running back runs into the flat. And then the outside receiver runs a go, which acts as the alert route, which, uh, by the way, outside receiver running a go nine times out of 10, Quentin Johnston and I'm not sure there's ever a situation where throwing to Quentin Johnson is objectively a bad decision, <laughs> especially in college. Yeah, he is a madman. There, I don't want to talk about him too much because we'll have plenty of time to later. But wow. Yeah. Then they have wide receiver smoke screen, which is the outermost slash furthest back in a stack receiver. It takes a step back and runs behind the other receivers who are blocking. And then finally, mesh post, which is two drags that cross and intersect close to one another with with a post from the outside receiver, guess who, falling immediately behind one of them, meant to abuse the linebackers in zone coverage with the post, and in man coverage, meant to create a natural rub. That's pretty much their passing game. Now, you may be saying, oh, well, that sounds very, very simple to be. Like, there has to be. No, all of these beat different coverages and in different ways. Yankee beats man coverage in cover three and cover four, and especially cover six. God help you if you're on cover six against us. Slot Vade kills cover two every single time. Sale murders cover three. Stick murders man coverage. <laughs> Wide receiver smoke screen. It's a screen. Mesh post kills both man and more conservative types of zone. They have something to beat every coverage. It just depends on what coverage they think you're running. I've talked for a while. Connor, do you have any thoughts? And then you get to cover your favorite quarterback in history. It's not yeah. your favorite quarterback. In <laughs> um, yeah. Well, for one, uh, their offensive coordinator is Lincoln Riley's brother. I yes, believe it is Garrett Riley. Yeah, Garrett Riley. Yeah, I remember they kept showing him. And I was like, "Why is Lincoln Riley wearing TCs?" Uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's gonna take more than that to impress. Me. Oh. <laughs> But yeah, he he looks a lot like him. He even wears the shades and everything. Like it, it was a uh, it all of a sudden it made a lot more sense why TCU's offense was as good as it is because he yeah. he either is as good as Lincoln Riley or he just calls him and says, "Hey, what should I do?" And <laughs> Lincoln Riley says, "Here is offense," and then they do that. But yeah, phenomenal, phenomenal offense. We'll get into the uh, um, positions now. Max Duggan, number fifteen, four year starter. This year with an asterisk, he has been excellent this year, uh, starting uh, since week two. He uh, has been really, really great. Uh, 69.5% completion percentage, 1,591 yards, 16 touchdowns, and the one pick, which again, I don't even hold it against him. I'm, you might as well consider him to have zero picks on the year, honestly, because the one pick, it, it was really just like a, end of the half let's just see what happens kind of throw yeah uh he's got 261 yards on the ground and five rushing touchdowns he had at least one really long run i think it might again then it might have been against ou i think it uh, was as well yeah uh but yeah his pff grade this year is 83.5 77.2 in the passing game and then in 89.1 in the run game however under pressure that does go down to 
uh, overall and a 54.6 passing grade. So definitely uh, something that is something to keep an eye on with our defense. So there's one thing we are good at. It's bringing pressure and collapsing a pocket on defense, especially with guys like Felix and Yudike Uzama and hopefully Nate Matlick, who hopefully is healthy, healthy by this point. Yeah. Climbing said we'll that he was as, as healthy as he's been this year. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Uh, uh, yeah, some more stuff on Duggan. He's completing fifty-seven point seven percent of his passes that are twenty yards or more downfield, um, which is huge because last year downfield accuracy wasn't really a thing for him, and this year he's completely turned that around. Um, he has been excellent. Uh, absolutely zero doubt uh, thus far this year. Uh, every single game, it feels like he's making huge, huge plays. Um, and he's only got, again, he's only got the one pick. Um, and he's been high completion percentage. Uh, he's been above 65% in every single game, except for the Oklahoma State game, which fair. That's a tough yeah, defense. That's fair. <laughs> and he, he's been absolutely excellent. Uh, this entire season. Um, his arm strength is good. It's not elite or anything like that, but it's solid. And he does get impatient at times. Uh, will sometimes only read, or most of the time, really, he's only reading one side of the field, but he is at least processing on that side. Um, he, he is going through making reads. Uh, he does not like short throws or checkdowns. Uh, he really likes the big play. Uh, it was even noted in the Oklahoma State game that they had checkdowns wide open the entire game, and he really didn't take them because uh, he was just trying to get downfield as much as he could. Um, they didn't really go to that checkdown until really late when they needed to get down the field, and they got like 15 yards because Oklahoma State was playing so far off of the checkdown because they didn't yep. think he'd actually throw it yep. ever. Um, if uh the play goes on for longer than what it's time for. He kind of lets this beat die. Um, so, but a little bit after that happens, he's going to be gone. Um, and so if he ever gets flat footed, he's about to run. He, he is absolutely gone. Uh, so just take off, run at them, man, as fast as possible. He is actually faster than you would think. You could say he has deceptive speed. Um, he's, <laughs> A real gym rat. <laughs> All right, I'm good. Anywho. <laughs> Not sure what you're laughing at. I'm just making comments about Max Duggan. Coach's favorite player. First yeah, guy in, last guy out. He, he's just a real blue-collar athlete. But he, uh, um, he is a threat on the ground regardless. Um, he prefers going through the front door rather than the outside. Um, when he is under pressure, his technique struggles, which is consistent with his uh, passing ability really struggling uh, and going down once he uh, is pressured. So not shocking there. But Max Duggan, he's dangerous. Uh, he's, I would say, probably the leader um, right now in terms of uh, favorites for first team, all big 12. And he's not even the guy they started the year with. I mean, he started with Chandler Morris. Um, Max Duggan uh, is excellent. He's dangerous. And 
a lot of why he's dangerous is because of the weapons around him. Yeah. Uh, if if it were up to me and the season ended like tomorrow, Max Duggan, if I were voting, would probably get my all big 12, like first team vote for quarterback. And I'm saying that as, you know, an Adrian Martinez truther. Uh, Max Duggan has been nuts this entire year. But they also have two really good running backs that, like Connor said earlier, there's there aren't many weaknesses on this offense. It's it bordering on special in terms of talent, but their two running backs are both have numbers exclusively made of threes, and that is Kendra Miller, number 33, and Imari Demarcado, uh, uh, goodness gracious, number three. Starting off with Kendra Miller, he has 91 rushes for 578 yards, eight touchdowns, and seven catches for 57 yards. A 75.7 PFF grade, 49.1 in the passing game, and then 79.5 in the running game. The first thing that sticks out about Kendra Miller is his vision. He just he doesn't he, he don't miss he doesn't miss <laughs> many many open lanes and. He also knows, like, I, I talk about this with DJ Giddens whenever watching him, and that's it's something I've been super impressed with and will always be impressed with at the college level. And that's he knows how to press into his blocks to make it harder for linebackers to try, you know, backdoor it for a TFL. So he's he's reading leverage. He's going through and he's hitting holes when he needs to. He's not gonna he's not gonna run himself into tackles for loss, which is a lot of this is a problem a lot of home run hitting backs tend to have. And Kendra Miller has that home run threat, but he also, you know, isn't going to run himself into a bunch of TFLs. The downside is he's not a very booming back. He's not your traditional power back, but he will fall forward by virtue of making every single contact that's hit against him very weak. And that's because he's kind of like Deuce and that he's not as good at it as Deuce because like no one is. But he's able to contort his body in some really creative ways to make sure he doesn't get hit hard so he can fall forward. And in terms of top speed, it's fine. Acceleration's fine. And another thing is that he has one move. It's nasty, and it's the spin move. Like, the, his spin move should not exist. It should not be legal. It's 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 nasty. It's gross. <laughs> it, and by that, I mean it, it's gross for in a way that benefits him. Not in a way that it's actually bad, but next up is Imari De Mercado. De Mercado. He has 36 rushes for 246 yards and four touchdowns, three catches for 28 yards, a 68.9 PFF grade, 55.3 in the passing game, and then 72.5 in the running game. He also has pretty good vision, and he's very good at making the minor adjustments in his movement without losing momentum. He's more of a tw- he's the twitchier of the two backs, but and he can even make some pretty great moves in space. But he just doesn't have that power. He's probably the faster of the two, but he isn't nearly as strong. But neither of these backs are slouches in any any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I think. Uh, De Mercado, probably kind of right. First time that try. I, <laughs> it, I think that he's probably a starter on maybe a few other Power Five rosters, maybe even some in the Big Twelve. He may actually start at like West Virginia. He may be in the rotation at Baylor. But you know, neither of these backs are are bad. Kendra Miller, I think, is actually quite good. 
But that's not what makes this offense horrifying. Connor, you have the first two parts of what makes this offense terrifying. All right. Uh, So wide receiver, the first two guys that we have are number one, Quentin Johnston, and number 18, Savion Williams. Quentin Johnston is many things, but above all, he is absolutely terrifying. He is six foot four, 215 pounds. Something that Ace and I have realized is it's like if Malik Knowles reached his final form uh, in some ways, athletically at least. After the catch, he's very similar. But the difference is that he's a borderline NFL ready receiver. He is absolutely excellent, he's a monster. Um, and he's having an incredible year. And that year is he's currently, I think, borderline leading the Big 12 and receiving, if not solely. And if not, he's doing it after in the first four weeks of the season, having games of 22, 22, 29 and 41 yards in the last two weeks. He's had games against Oklahoma State where he had eight catches for 180 yards and a touchdown. 22 yards per catch and then against KU 14 catches 206 yards 14.7 yards per catch and a touchdown he was excellent he was really good last year um this year though he has become a whole different beast um 34 catches 500 yards 14 14.7 per catch and two touchdowns 80.5 PFF grade 80.3 pass grade drop rate of 8.1 percent and then the last two weeks, a 90.9 grade against KU and an 89.8 against Oklahoma State. Going into the year, I would have said there's a conversation. Ace would have said this as well. There's a conversation about who the best receiver in the Big 12 is, and it revolves around Xavier Worthy, Quentin Johnston, like Xavier Hutchinson. But he is the best receiver in the Big 12 right now. Yeah. And there's no doubt about it. He. Uh, yeah. And uh, by the way, to go back earlier, he's the third leading receiver behind Xavier Hutchinson, who has nearly 800 yards, and Marvin Mims, who has 42 more. That's shocking that Mims has more because I feel like he's been very quiet the last few weeks. But anywho, Johnston. No, it's fine. It's fine. Thank you for that. Uh, Johnston, he is one of the most dangerous receivers in not just the Big 12, but in the entire country. Um, He is high level in everything he does. He has an unbelievable catch radius. Great catch through contact. He climbs the ladder over you. He goes through you. He breaks you down and gets open. And even if you cover him well, he will simply push him off you after he makes the catch anyways. So it hardly matters. And uh, his yeah, his catch after the catch shifty, shiftier than you would think. Looking at him being 6'4", 215, he will just juke you out, break your ankles, move around you. And if he decides that he doesn't want to go through all that effort, he will simply run over you. His top, his speed is really great. Very good acceleration. The really only quality he has that isn't elite or borderline elite is that he isn't an elite separator in his routes. Um, he still separates plenty well. Just He's just not elite at it. And then, like I said earlier, he's like, if Malik Knowles reached his final form, pretty yeah. much. 
He is unbelievable. And really the only way to even have a shot at covering him is to just have somebody who matches him in size and athletic attributes shadow him. Hopefully, hint, we have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> or you or bracket him. Like that's yeah, the or bracket. You can't yeah. body him. It's not possible. You can't do that. You can't body Quentin Johnston. It's yeah. not happening. <laughs> now that particular strategy, you're you're gonna get destroyed. Like well, like when we tried like one on one Omar Daniels v Marvin Mims, that obviously didn't work. This would go much worse than that would because it would happen over and over and over again. <laughs> and he Quentin Johnson, it cannot be understated how good Quentin Johnston is, and you would be remiss to doubt him. Last year, going into the TCU game. You and I were very worried about Quentin Johnston, and we contained him fairly well. I can only hope that we can come close to replicating even a fraction of that. If we hold him to any amount of yardage and zero touchdowns, I won't be displeased. Mm-mm. No, I, I, we take those. If we keep him under like 125, honestly, and I'm contain everybody champagne. else. I'm popping champagne. Yeah, Trace and that's not an indictment me. of this that is not an indictment of this past defense. I am simply accepting Quentin Johnson's likely going to get his. We just need to limit scores and that's it. But there are other people in this room, not named Quentin Johnston. Uh, first of which is Savion Williams. He's six, five 15, 14 catches, 144 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, he is much more human, at least for now. Uh, 60 PFF grade, 58.7 pass grade, 12.5% drop rate. Um, he doesn't really use his size as well as you would think. Not a lot of 6'5 receivers that you run into, but you wouldn't guess it other than when he's blocking. Um, and he he's a, he's just a really great blocker. Um, he can make catches outside of his frame if asked to, but he just has a consistency issue with that. Uh, his drop rate is a little bit higher than you would like if you're a TCU fan. And he doesn't separate very well either. He's just not a particularly great route runner. Um, but all in all, he's a solid receiver. Again, uh, just not phenomenal. He's not really had a great game. His best performances came kind of in the middle of, this, of what we've seen so far, which was SMU and OU, where he had three catches in each of those games. But again, he's not been overly dangerous thus far this year. Knock on wood. Because the last thing we need is another receiver to worry about to the level of Johnston. But uh, yeah, so Ace, if you want to take the other two receivers. Yeah. The other two receivers are number four, Tay Barber, and number 11, Darius Davis. Starting off with Tay Barber, he's a fifth-year player. He has 14 catches for 262 yards on the year with two touchdowns. That's not a typo. (laughs) That's not a typo. (laughs) He's averaging like 20 yards a catch. Those are but, some Byron Pringle numbers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 67 and a half PFF grade, 63.4 in the passing game, and a 6.7 drop rate. The number one thing is he's shifty. He's used a lot as the screen guy that they can trust to make someone miss and get the extra yards after the catch whenever the ball is in his hands. And of the receivers listed, he's the most like the slot archetype. You know, he's the he's the shifty route runner who finds holes in zone coverage when asked to and then gets yards after the catch. He has solid hands, solid speed, 
can make people miss in the open field. He's reliable. He's that reliable, smart fifth-year player that you're going to, you know, despite him not even coming close to leading the team in catches, he's reliable. He's good, as you can see. And he's able to get open, even deep in, even when it's not deep, he can house it anywhere on the field. Next up is num is uh, number 11, Darius Davis. He has 21 catches on the year, 224 yards, and three touchdowns. A 66.9 PFF grade, a 67.9 passing game, and a 4.5 drop percentage. From a purely statistical standpoint, he has the best hands on the team. Um, again, that's purely statistical. <laughs> he, uh, he has a pretty good degree of snap out of his routes, and he's sent in motion just about as much as Barber is. And he also serves as the kick returner, which speaks to his ability in the open field. So you have two monsters in Savion Williams and, you know, the scariest receiver <laughs> in the Big 12 <laughs> And it's not close in Quentin Johnston. And then you have the two more finesse guys in Tay Barber and Darius Davis. So this receiving core is it's scary. I'm not gonna lie to you. It's it's scary. Every night it haunts my dreams. But <laughs> it, it it'll be an interesting matchup, and we'll talk about it later. Connor, you have tight ends fullbacks, and do you want left side or right side of the line? I'll take left. Okay. One last note on the receivers. The lone silver lining for us and the rest of the Big 12 is uh, the Tay Barber um, and Darius Davis are seniors. And Quentin Johnson is almost certainly going to be going to the NFL as an eligible junior. So at least most of these guys will probably not be here next year. Uh, hoping so. Please. <laughs> I don't want to deal with them again. Never <laughs> but, again, please. Uh, yeah, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. But moving on to tight end fullbacks, Jared Wiley, number 19, is the guy here. Uh, seven catches for 62 yards on the year, 75.5 PFF grade, 80 grade in the pass, and then a 54.2 run block grade. He is an okay blocker. He's fine. Solid, one might say. <laughs> Mediocre. <laughs> average perhaps <laughs> he's fine he's fine yeah. he he doesn't do much in this offense he without a doubt is a football player that exists he's really big he's 6'7 255 mm -hmm. and that's about all that can be said about him he's yeah. he's okay yeah but, he exists yeah so i'll move to the left side of the offensive line uh first of all o-line general they're giving up Pressure on 27.6% of dropbacks, nine sacks, uh, given up so far just 4.76% of dropbacks uh, for this DCU team, which is tied for 46th in FBS. So a little above average there um, and preventing sacks thus far. Um, but we, we will see if that continues because uh, he did only, he was only sacked once. Uh, against Oklahoma State has a really good defensive line. On the other hand, he got sacked five times against SMU. So a lot of his sacks came in that one game. Yeah. So interesting. Going to be interested to see how that offensive line holds up. I feel like we'll learn a lot about them after the game. But right now, we can tell you what we know before. That left tackle, Brandon Coleman, number 77, 
He's a two-year starter to redshirt junior, six foot six, three hundred twenty-five pounds, and wears a cowboy collar at left tackle. Which I I know Ace loves the cowboy collar. I also love the cowboy collar. Uh, I honestly prefer it uncovered. The covered look has its place, but I I do prefer the uh, um not covered cowboy collar. I think it's it's such a cool look. I say yeah. cool. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but well, the covered it, look it makes you look like a ninja turtle. So I, I don't <laughs> fair. I suppose that is true, but he's, uh, he's got that look, uh, 69.1 PFF grade, 67.8 pass blocker and then a 65.9 run blocker. So fairly solid there. Um, his arm position when starting his pass sets is a little too extended. So he's not getting the greatest punch or the quickest hands on the rusher. I uh, susceptible to any move that focuses on his arms rather than his body. Uh, so hopefully Felix will have some moves in his arsenal for him. Or um, Felix can just bully he can him. hold his own. <laughs> yeah. Which to be fair, Felix does that to most <laughs> individuals that he faces. But yeah, um, he's going to be susceptible to any move. Uh, I already said that, excuse me. As an anchor and pass protection, though, he can more than hold his own. Um, so if, if he's able to set up shop, he's going to do a solid job. But if you meet with a speed rush from kind of a wide nine almost, uh, he's not going to do so well because he oversets the inside and gets himself leaning forward. Um, he he just kind of like... Falls. Yeah, he, he, he falls a la Christian Duffy. Um, <laughs> he's catching he always catches at least one stray <laughs> he always does and I feel so bad because like he's actually been pretty solid this year I think but, good. Like, I, I I can never forget about that um, anyhow and run blocking uh, he's good at getting his hips flipped to seal off an edge um, he does have that issue remaining though with his arms he can get knocked off of his game pretty easily um, but he's he's fine uh, then we move into left guard, Steve Avila, uh, number 79, a three year, a three year starter and a red shirt senior, uh, six foot four, 330 pounds, a 68.5 PFF grade, 88.2 pass blocking grade, uh, and a 64.7 run block. I am not sure why his overall grade is that low when his pass block is that high. They didn't ask me, but <laughs> unbelievable pass blocker as his grade indicates, um, he is looking for work. He can handle himself on an island. Uh, he does a really nice job uh, providing help to either the left guard Coleman or to the center uh, whenever he doesn't have somebody right up on him. And he keeps his eyes up really well as well. Um, however, once you get him out of that situation and get him in space, uh, that uh, isn't his ideal situation. He just doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't get the push that he needs. He, he just kind of spawns at the second level, but not in a good way. He just kind of appears and is there. And he says, I am here to block you. And they just say, I do not care and (laughs) move along. But incredible, incredible pass blocker uh, is Steve Avila or Avila. But yeah, he uh, is not the best in space, not the greatest run blocker. Yeah. And then starting with their center for the right side of the line, it's Alan Ali, number 56. He's a redshirt senior transfer from SMU, so followed Sonny Dykes. 
a six foot five, three hundred pound center, a sixty six point one PFF grade, seventy seven point six in run and pass block, and then sixty point one run blocking. His biggest thing is that he's not that strong by center standards, and he can get bodied pretty easily by you know bigger nose tackles. This is honestly a game where I could see you know Uso getting in, like instead of like you know D Hence will obviously be you know the second guy off the bench, but Uso may get in a little bit more because I think he might be a little stronger, whereas Hens is a little more finessey. He still has strength. Don't misunderstand me. But uh, Uso is like 340 pounds Samoan man. <laughs> so, <laughs> or he might be Hawaiian. Uh, I don't either or Polynesian. <laughs> He's big boy, big man. <laughs> um, But he doesn't get a great first punch on anyone directly lined up on him. But he's best when he's not going straight forward. And that's where most of his strengths are. He's a very, very good lateral mover, both in the inside zone game and in pass protection. So as long as you, and this is going to sound very strange, so long as he is not moving forward, he's great. (laughs) Which is such a strange thing to say about a center. But, you know, as long as he is not moving forward, it's a great center. Then moving on to their right guard, which is Wes Harris, number 78, a redshirt senior. He is 6'4", 315 pounds, a 61.5 PFF grade, 66.9 pass block, and a 60.3 run blocking grade. And he's also good at keeping his eyes up and making clean trade-offs against stunts, which he had to do against Oki State a bit. And in the running game, he just kind of picks the wrong linebacker to block on inside zone, which is kind of funny. Because, you know, you're always taught to aim where you think the linebacker is going to be on a lot of those plays. And he just picks the wrong one. <laughs> um, you know, that could happen to anybody. It really honestly. could have. Uh, he doesn't pick up to cut him off. He just kind of drifts to the other linebacker. It's kind of a problem with both guards, honestly. But he's an all right Big 12 guard who has pretty good head on his shoulders. And then finally... I- the saddest I've ever been about a, an, an opposing player kind of falling off. And that's right tackle number 74, Andrew Coker, a three-year starter, Richard Jr. 6'7", 315 pounds, a 58.7 PFF grade, 65 pass block, 59.1 run, run, run block. I don't know what happened between last year and this one, but he's regressed so far. His footwork has gotten so sloppy and his kicks, I just it just looks slow. And it's such a shame because, like, he looked so good last year. He looked so fluid as a tackle. And he's also developed the habit of getting grabby. Like, he's not always called for it. In fact, I only think he has, like, three penalties on the year and two were against Okie State. And one was somewhat questionable. But he's just getting grabby for an outside tackle. And all that being said, he's still not bad. He's just not as good as he was last year. He can anchor himself really well, and his hands are pretty good. He can pretty much match hand fighting with anyone. He's kind of the opposite of a Coleman at left tackle. And he's still a good run blocker, especially when he's acting as the the more lead blocker on more outside zone plays. But, you know, Andrew Coker is, hate to say it, but he's, he's regressed. And honestly, he may be the weak point on this line this year, as opposed to last year when he was kind of the strength of it. Such a strange thing to think about, but before I start waxing poetic about that, you and I can kind of split defense here. And I'll, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take explaining the defensive front because it, it's such a strange thing to me. 
It's one yeah. of my it's one of my brain scrunklies. I have to talk about it. <laughs> no, yeah, this is your particular passion project here. So I <laughs> will I will let you take the lead. Don't don't mind me. <laughs> okay. So moving on to defense. In terms of their defensive front, they run a front that isn't really tight, odd, or stack. It's a it's a front that I don't quite know the name of. But it's essentially a, a three-tech and a one-technique on the weak side and then a four-eye on the strong side. So basically, um, outside shoulder of the guard, inside shoulder of the – or left side shoulder, in, if formation strength is to the right, left side shoulder of the center, and then on the inside shoulder of the tackle on the opposite side of the strong side of the play. Um and sometimes the strong side guy flexes all the way out to a wide nine on like obvious passing downs. It's very funny, but it's very funny because you just get like, two, <laughs> you just get two defensive linemen who are like super close to one another on the other side of the formation. And then you just like B gaps open, C gaps open. Oh, there's a defensive end playing in outer space. I guess. <laughs> but uh, and before I go any further, I'm really waiting for a QB power on like third and 15 that will abuse this fact <laughs> because I, I, I w- I'm calling my shot here. Uh, that's going to be a play call, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's such a strange. And I, I had a, I had a discussion with someone on Twitter today that was, you know, it was a, it was supposed to be a schematic thing more against Oklahoma state because they run a lot of counters, which is true. They do run a lot of counters. But the only game that I have seen, granted, I've only seen four of their six. The only game where I've seen them come out with that look with less consistency than like 50% of the time was up against KU. And that's because the way KU's offense works is you want to be as balanced as possible just because of how they handle motion. But this is, it's their primary front. And that kind of leaves them susceptible to you'd think it would leave them susceptible to outside zone. Oklahoma State tried that. It did not work well for them. <laughs> but they only managed like 3.4 yards per carry, if I'm remembering correctly. But, you know, something to that effect. But what you want to do against this type of front is you want to try and attack that B-gap as best you can, which you can do, you know, halfback dive, basically. <laughs> and Deuce can... This is something that I think Deuce especially can take advantage of because he can just hide behind his block. I know it's a short joke. I know it's not even a joke. It's a thing that he can actually do. He can hide behind the right. He can hide behind Hadley Panzer in this case. He can just hide behind him and then just get to the second level easy as can be. But that that's kind of their defensive front. They... They have another front, which is just the typical tight front, nose tackle, you know, guys on tackles. Like, but that that's that's my brain scrunkly of the week. You can talk about the rest. <laughs> yeah. Um they operate a lot on instinct, uh defensively and a bit on blitzing, uh, from a balanced look, uh like uh, pistol, which K State has been running a little bit more of this year. Uh, they'll play just kind of your traditional stack front. Um, however, in general, a lot of their impact plays from their defensive line come from a slanting alignment and how they attack gaps uh, and outside shoulders of linemen rather than the lineman himself. The same goes for their linebackers. It feels like more often than not, at least one of them is sent on a blitz of some sort, and how they rush is much more effective 
than their ability to beat game wreckers. So similar to K-State, it can be taken advantage of on defense if you slow play things like runs and force them to be patient as Simon Sound. Uh, very similar to how Texas Tech approached uh, K-State's defense in the second and third quarters of that game where they were very successful running the football um, just by playing it patient, uh, taking their time, and letting K-State overrun. Um, TCU is pretty, pretty similar. Um, but yeah, personnel... Uh, I can get into this as well because you just talked for like five minutes straight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry, it's a brain skunkly. I had to. <laughs> it, no, I, I understand. It's fine. Uh, they run the same three-three-five hybrid kind of defense. Everybody in the Big Twelve runs nowadays. It feels like um, the difference is that they don't really play a lot of three-high. Uh, so, congratulations, Ace. You do not have to watch three-high the entire game. Let's go. Um, <laughs> They do run it sometimes, but rarely, not not often. Um, they generally have the third safety play uh, kind of in the box or slot, kind of more of a like cat safety almost. Mm-hmm. Um, K-State used to run a lot of that uh, kind of in the mid-2000s. A uh, guy like Randall Evans uh, will probably ring a bell uh, in that regard for K-State. Um and then a part of this goes to their coverage philosophy as a three high. It just wouldn't make much sense. Uh, they have a notable preference for man coverage or um, they like match, especially um, in coverages. Um, they like single high, like cover one. Um, although they also have a preference for semi single high coverages, like cover six. Uh, they really enjoy rolling their safeties, um, be it rolling them down closer to the box or rotating them to the passing strength of the field. Um, a lot of their coaching philosophy though does leave them vulnerable to the QB run game. Uh, and it also leaves them pretty vulnerable to routes in the flat or routes from non-traditional receivers, like tight ends or running backs. If you see, or if you run a running back screen, they just simply are not equipped to handle that as a defense. Um, just by virtue of how aggressive they are in rolling their defenses. So if you just pick the right side, then it might be all over for them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, and uh, one of the counters that people will say to the the quarterback running game is, you know, uh, Jalen Daniels was, he didn't have a great day. Spencer Sanders was mostly contained. You see, here's the thing is that they had literally, there was a snap, and I imagine this was not an uncommon reprieve. They had a snap where they had, I am not joking, not one, not two, but three <laughs> quarterback spies on Spencer Sanders. <laughs> I imagine they have the same at least once or twice for Jalen Daniels. It was very funny watching everyone else just play straight man coverage and then you see three defenders just eyeballing Spencer Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> but now that the, the schematics bit is over with, we can talk about their actual personnel starting with their interior defensive line which is made up predominantly by two people, Dominic Williams, number 52, and Timon uh, uh, Mitchell. Goodness gracious, what is with me today? Number 91. Starting off with Williams, he's actually a true freshman, so there's that. He has 10 tackles, two TFLs, one and a half sacks, a 65.3 PFF grade, 63.4 run defense, 67.6 tackling, and then 63.6 in the rush, pass rush. All of his strengths and weaknesses stem from the fact that he's massive. He's just a big dude. <laughs> he's just a big guy. 
he can two gap a running play by virtue of existing. And I know that sounds like a fat joke and it it's not meant to be. He's just that big and he has the strength to back it up. But the thing is, he's a, he's a tick or two slow off the ball, which you really don't want as a nose tackle. And a part of this might be well because he's just playing the run and his top goal is to flow along with the play, not necessarily to blow it up. He's much more the uh, the prevent the big play kind of tackle than uh, the wreck it before it gets started type of player. But, you know, he's he's still big. He's still strong. He's a big dude. He has one and a half sacks on the year, so he's gotten through a few times. And then uh, Timon Mitchell, a transfer from Georgia. Yes, a transfer from Georgia came to TCU. And yes, he plays about as well as you think he does. <laughs> Excuse me. He has 10 tackles, two and a half TFLs, and two sacks. A 78 PFF grade, 73.7 run defense, 78.6 tackling, and then a 74.8 pass rush. His biggest weakness is his hand placement, which is a bit high, which is so strange because he, he plays with a really good pad level. So it kind of just looks like he's reaching upwards a lot, which is a weird problem to have, but okay. And his biggest thing is because, no offense to Williams, but uh, he's he's clearly the better player. <laughs> <laughs> he's brought in a lot on passing downs or the more high leverage situations. And he's relentless to say the least. He's like, he's not the type of player that's going to make one move and say, Oh, well, I've, I, I, we've done nothing and I'm out of ideas, but he's, he'll, if his initial rush doesn't work, he'll try to go for a club. He'll try to go for a swim. He'll try to work to a different gap. He's not someone who's just going to lay down. If you, when he's blocked. And that's one of the best things that you could ask for, for a interior defensive lineman, especially because he's big enough to where he can push the pocket and make people uncomfortable. So um, let's just say that no matter what front they're running, Hayden Gillum is going to have a handful, no matter who's running at nose tackle, but you have their edge players. Yeah. So on the edge, you've got number 98, Dylan Horton and number 95 Terrell Cooper. Starting out with Horton, uh, he's got 13 tackles, one and a half tackles for loss, three pass breakups, and four quarterback hurries on the season. He has a 75 PFF grade, 77.4 run defense grade, and a 73.1 tackle grade to go with a 66.6 rush defense grade. Uh, while he's in, he's pretty solid in 1v1. Uh, if his rush gets redirected, he's pretty much done for. Uh, if you're able to push him inside. Uh, get just another set of hands on him. If you're able to push him past and get him out of the way, it's going to be rough. Uh, kind of indicates uh, I'm kind of a motor player, but if you just like kind of get in his way, then that's kind of it. Uh, but a run defense, he's quick enough and big enough to be a dangerous force player and one that can break past anybody if you don't meet him head on. So he's a solid edge guy. Uh, again, really good run force uh, type of person, uh, which is more valuable than you would think and never it's one of those things that just doesn't show up on the stat sheet but is unbelievably valuable it's something boom mass he did really well for k-state last year he was excellent at the run force yeah um terrell cooper on the other hand nine tackles one and a half tackles for loss a pass breakup a quarterback hurry and a forced fumble he's at 67 and a half on pff 78.7 run defense grade 67 point tackle and a 49.9 pass rush grade uh, he has a quick set of hands that he can use to disengage. 
from blocking. However, as his grade indicates, he really doesn't bring much to the table in terms of pass rushing. He doesn't really have any moves. He just kind of runs in the general direction of the quarterback and his hands sure are quick, but that's about about where it ends. So not a ton to to write home about on the edge players. They're good um, in the run defense. That's kind of their role on this team, but not really a heavy dose of pass rush coming from the edges, um, uh, at least thus far this year from those two guys. Yeah. So I have you for the linebackers, which is number 13, D. Winters, number 57, Johnny Hodges, and number six, Jamoy Hodge. Starting off with D. Winters, and the way this defense works is technically any of these people can play any position at any time. But I'm kind of going with, with the approximations of what they I think they want them to play. And if you get them in the right situation, they would prefer them playing which is first off D Winters, who's probably the more prototypical will linebacker weak side. He has 29 tackles, seven TFLs, four and a half sacks and one pass defense, a 57.0 PFF grade, 58.8 run defense, 62.3 tackling 72.6 on the pass rush. And then a 49.7 coverage grade. His biggest issue, as you can guess from his grades is in coverage. And he just gets caught up looking too much at the receiver in zone. And he just doesn't have the athleticism make up for time lost in reading them instead of the quarterback, because that that's the main difference in zone and man coverages. As you can guess is in zone, you're supposed to be reading the quarterback's eyes in man. You're just, you have a guy defend him, (laughs) but in zone coverage, you, he really just doesn't have the athleticism to make up for the situations that he puts himself in with. He doesn't look at the eyes of the quarterback. That's he doesn't get to them as quickly as he should. He's also sent on a pretty good amount of blitzes and by design, he loops around a lot more and he actually does rush. So he's kind of more of that stunt linebacker. Think of how uh, not Malcolm Rodriguez, but the other linebacker from Oklahoma state last year, there were two of them, but (laughs) the names are escaping me, but he, he was a good stunt linebacker. He's good at looping around. He's plenty fast enough to where he can get around the edge. He's just not fast enough in coverage, which is a strange problem to have. But he's actually quite strong, and he can hold an edge against a pulling guard. You know, he's not going to bowl through him or anything, but he's not giving up much ground, and he's he's a tenacious player. He's a tenacious will linebacker. And then after this, I will give you the Mike linebacker in the two corners. And... <laughs> You get Johnny Hodges. He's, I think they would want him as the Sam more traditionally, though he plays a little bit more Mike. And uh, he's also a cowboy collar enjoyer, a true, <laughs> a true <laughs> man of culture here. We have two, two cowboy collar enjoyers here. He's a Johnny Hodges is a transfer from Navy. He has 37 tackles, four TFLs, and one and a half sacks. A 61.2 PFF grade, 53.2 run defense, 64.9 tackling, 53.9 in the rush, and 71.7 in coverage. From a mental standpoint, he's he's not the greatest at initially diagnosing a play. So he'll probably buy it on play action if you ask him to. And But once he gets it figured out, he's flying towards that play. He plays with his head on fire. And because of that, he can overrun the play in both run defense and coverage. But again, part of that's just his play style. He 
is someone that plays high speed all the time. Go, go, go as fast as you can. And despite his hair on fire approach, he's not the greatest true athlete on the field. And I'm not just saying that because it's the obvious joke to make, but you know, as the Sam linebacker, you typically don't think is, you know, the most insane athlete, but he's just not, he's fine. He's a good athlete. He's obviously like a D one power five athlete, but he's not the greatest. Like he's not Isaiah Simmons, basically. He also has a tendency to make what I call prayer tackles, something you only see from D, mostly only see from DBs. And uh, to describe this, it is basically, I have lost this rep. I will now simply dive at your knees and hope that you fall. It's worked for him. It's working. <laughs> I, can't, I can't explain. It's working for him. But yeah, that I don't know quite what explains his high coverage grade because he's not that great at it. But <laughs> um, yeah, you have the mic and the two top two corners. Yep. So at Mike, you've got uh, one Jamoy Hodge, number six. Um, he's got 30 tackles on the year, three tackles for loss, two and a half sacks, and then also a pick. Um, his BFF grade so far is 69.4, 81.7 run defense, 77.9 tackling, 50.8 in the pass rush, and then 58.8 in coverage. Um, he's not incredible at blitzing. He's not a great contain player. Um, he's a solid run defender, but uh, he does always rock forward at the beginning of pretty much every play. Um, if he does get asked to go backwards, uh, that's just something that he's not particularly comfortable with. Uh, it must just be a habit of some sort, which I mean, again, he's rocking forward at the beginning of every play. So obviously there's a habit there of some sort. Against the run, he doesn't do... Um, a great job when he isn't given a clean look um, specifically. Other than that, he does kind of hold his own. Uh, if he is faced with a lineman or tight end, he doesn't attack them the way that he needs to. Rather, he just tries to power through them with his body and not avoid them or fight through them with his hands. Um, he he does play pass reps pretty strangely as well. Um, he almost looks like he's playing spy, but he's too far back for that. But he's too far up to be playing the whole defender and man coverage. So he's, he's certainly doing something. <laughs> yeah. And I, he's, he's clearly being instructed to do something, but yeah. it is apparently a state secret as a, <laughs> as, as to what that is. Yeah. So. I, and it, we say all that, it, it makes it sound like, you know, he's this irredeemable player. It, I, it wasn't intended to sound like that. Cause he actually is quite a good tackler yeah. and his bruising style of playing the run is effective you know it's just i he's gonna meet someone bigger than him and he's gonna lose it's like you know that that guy that you know that runs up and down aggieville always looking for a fight he's gonna pick the fight with the 6'5 285 pound dude and lose <laughs> it's it, he he'll hold his own and he's trying but you know he's gonna he can't win fights with linemen but outside of that he's a really really good run defender and a really really good tackler it's just everything else <laughs> Yeah, um, but then we can move on from the uh, linebacker room to the corners. Uh, we start out with Travius Hodges Tomlinson, number one. Uh, Hodges Tomlinson, he's got 21 tackles, three pass breakups, and a forced fumble on the season. 66.5% or 66.5 PFF grade. 
uh, 70.1 run defense, 72.3 tackle, and a 65.2 coverage. Um, he does a weird, he has a weird ability that allows him to make pass breakups at the absolute last possible second by diving. It's like he's in like Madden or something, just like making <laughs> these dramatic plays. Um, he makes those diving pass breakups really effectively to the point where he's better at it than he would be just standing there trying to bat a ball down. So strange. So weird. It, it is very, very odd. I, I don't know what to make of that other than I'm, I'm just picturing him like in his backyard, like in middle school, just like practicing the diving pick constantly. <laughs> and he just forgets to practice. Like they're just like doing normal coverage. <laughs> like, very theatrical, I guess, but as corners tend to be that, that is fair. It's, we, maybe we should have expected it, but um. <laughs> He does play a little bit sticky. Um, by that, we mean that he tries to play bully ball. Uh, he plays in a unique way of not jamming you at the line, but he tries to merge himself <laughs> into the receiver's body. Just he doing okay, something. I, I, I need to explain that. Please explain this, Ace. <laughs> I didn't write that. <laughs> right. So what I meant by that is Normally, whenever you're playing man coverage as a man cover corner, your goal is to be in their hip. You always want to keep at least one hand near or at their hip so you can kind of feel where they're going. But by that extension, you're supposed to leave maybe a couple inches of separation. So that way you're not tripping over. Like, so you're not a tripping over one another. And B, if he moves to that opposite direction, he's not just like, clotheslining you. Uh, Travis Hodges Tomlinson does not play by this rule. He is quite literally, it, it, that's what it looks like sometimes. And it looks like good coverage. And then they make a move and it's like, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> it, he tries to, it, I guess the better way is he's trying to mirror exactly what they're doing, but he's trying to do it like on top of them. <laughs> it seriously, I, if collision was off, if collision was turned off for like two seconds on earth and he happens to be doing a pass rep, he, he may end up just like melding like the Terminator through the bars in T2. <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you get back to that. That Sometimes I get really tired and then just start writing things that I think are funny. So... Anywho. <laughs> All the credit in the world to him, regardless. Uh, he can get absolutely demolished uh, in the running game, um, but then he immediately sticks his nose right back into the play. So credit to him for having a, a really high motor. Um, but then we get to the other corner, uh, number 24, Josh Newton. Uh, he's a transfer, actually, from uh, Louisiana Monroe. Uh, 15 tackles, uh, two Tackles for loss, two picks, and four pass breakups. Uh, 77.8 PFF grade, 70.9 run defense, 69 in tackling, and a 79.1 coverage grade. So quite good uh, through this point in the season. Um, he's a great defender in the vertical passing game, no matter what he is doing, whether it be a man or a zone or whatever have you. <laughs> um, 
His biggest weakness, though, is probably over the middle due to his tendency to want to funnel you to the sidelines just because that's what he's comfortable with. But for the most part, though, as a man cover corner, he is really great. Keeps a hand on the receiver to feel for where he's going. He stays in the hip pocket and apparently merges into the receiver's <laughs> body. Like no, that's Travis. That's just Travis. <laughs> that's not uh, what you want to do. <laughs> no, I'm transplanting it to Josh Newton now. Every TCU <laughs> corner is turned into like a T800 and just bolds through all the laws of physics and just becomes one with the receiver. Playing Who defense. would you credit to the pick if they merged? Um, I think that you would have to credit the defensive back still because even if the receiver catches it, it's not of their own volition. Okay, uh, that's that would fair. be my argument. They that's they wouldn't fair. have the they wouldn't have they would not have the requisite intent to <laughs> meet the crime base. Okay, I hate myself. <laughs> Any, um, he stays in his hip pocket really well normally. And he's very hard to be in true one-on-one reps, especially on the outside. Uh, he wants to get you to the sideline and give you little to no room to operate. In zone, he's fine. Um, leaves a little to be desired. He's a little slower than you'd like reacting to the ball. Kind of sounds reminiscent of Echo in some ways with the elite man coverage. Um, and in zone, solid, but not always the best in terms of positioning. And his reaction could be better. Yeah. Obviously not one to one, but in a very broad sense, um, they there are some similarities that you could draw, even if they're not particularly similar players. For one, Josh Newton actually has interceptions. Echo, nobody ever throws at him, so he just doesn't have the opportunity. Sadly, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that does it for the corners. So, has yeah. to be ready to cover the uh, safeties. All right, uh, these descriptions are normal. So we can talk about their safeties, <laughs> which is number three, Mark Perry, Abra- and number 14, Abraham Kamara, and then number 28, Millard Bradford. So let's start with Mark Perry, who's their strong safety. He's a transfer from Colorado. He had 33 tackles on the year and two and a half TFLs, uh, 66.1 PFF grade, 78 run defense, 81.8 tackling, and then 59.0 in coverage. He's a much better dodger and navigator in the run than a true like force. And that being said, when no one accounts for him in the running game, he's not going to miss that much. And on weaker tight ends, he can they can get into a bit of trouble if they don't meet him head on. Uh, I'm not pointing any fingers, but <laughs> but it, you know they can get him into trouble, and he's a rarely good run defender, which is why he's the strong safety. And in open space, he is going for the prayer tackles. He's going to dive for your shoes and make you trip. It works very well. He's very good at it, but it removes a lot of the big hits that you would expect from, you know, most traditional strong safeties. But his biggest downside is if he is asked to cover anything, and I do mean anything, that is not from a traditional receiver alignment, so not on the outside or in the slot, uh, he gets dusted. He dies. Yeah, he's, no, mm-mm, don't, don't ask him to do that because he's, it's not going to work well for him. And I know that this has become a meme for <laughs> the Alley Cats meme, but I am unironically paging the Deuce Vaughn wheel route because there was a wheel route that Oklahoma State ran to their running back, and he just declined to close his hands to catch the ball, which would have been a touchdown. The The running back simply declined <laughs> after dusting have, Mark Perry. It sounds like he should have accepted that, actually. 
he should have he should have he should have accepted that catch if i were the running back i think that's what i would have done in that I, situation i agree i would have done I, that i think well. i, I would have i would have caught the ball instead of not ah, I agree. If, it were, if, it, if it were me if i was there i would have done it differently <laughs> exactly next up is abraham kamara who is the jack this is that safety i have no idea what they call it it's the jack safety leave me alone he has 25 <laughs> tackles one interception, three pass breakups, and one forced fumble. A 73.8 PFF grade, 77.7 run defense trips, and a 51.9 tackling, 73.1 in coverage. He doesn't play close to the line of scrimmage particularly often, and his coverage ability is solid across the board. He has a little bit of a leverage problem when facing out breaking routes, but that comes more with positioning because he's kind of taught to cover the inside first and foremost. Which, as a slot, like a more traditional slot guy, I can see why you'd be coached that way. And he's another big fan of the ankle tackle technique, which has been handed down by defensive backs for generations upon generations. And he's actually really good coming downhill and run support. And he honestly may be, this may be strange to say, but he might be better at it than their actual strong safety. So they basically just have two strong safeties on the field at all times. Again, I've talked a little bit. There are actually two other safeties. Both kind of play the same role. And you can color Millard and Nandi Obiezor. Yeah. So Millard Bradford, free safety, uh, 17 tackles and four pass breakups thus far. 77.8 in PFF, 78 run defense, 82.4 tackling, 64.6 in the pass rush, and then 74.6 coverage. A uh, few things about him. He does get himself tangled up in his own feet at times. It doesn't stop him from getting pass breakups, but it does cost him uh, interceptions at a, on occasion. Um, he did get dinged up in the KU game, didn't play against Oklahoma State, so not as many notes uh, here on Millard Bradford, other than that's kind of a fun name. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very fun name. Yeah, very fun name, um, but respectable season thus far for a uh, Mr. Bradford, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we can get into uh, Namdi Obiezer, number four. If that name sounds familiar to you, his younger brother, uh, Shitty Obiezer, is a current K-State commit at defensive end. So, yeah, brother at TCU. Uh, Namdi Obiezer, he also gets free safety snaps. Uh, played in the Oklahoma State game due to injury to Bradford. Um, for a center fielder, his feet are freaky fast. Um, his existence, um, is a bit of a coverage indicator though, cause he is pretty much just playing center fielder. Um, and if he's not doing that, he's not doing much at all. Um, he doesn't love to play the hook or the intermediate. Um, but Namdi, Namdi, Obiezer, uh, 22 tackles, uh, so far on this year, 12 of them solo, no picks, no pass deflections, nothing, uh, particular about that. Junior got really good size, six three two ten. Uh, so good size for the center fielder there. Um, but yeah, really the big fact about him is that his brother is going to play at K State next year. So yeah, but yeah, he is a he is a very good center fielder. Yep. So that is the scouting report. Now we can go into the stories to watch going into the game. First and foremost, how healthy is K State coming off of their bye week? Uh, if Clemens to be believed, pretty healthy, the healthiest we've been. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, this bye week was pretty much perfectly timed, I think, because I feel like if we had played another week or two, I think we would have started to drop games that we shouldn't have because this team was very banged up. Uh, a lot of minor injuries, nagging injuries that just needed a break. And we're finally getting that. Uh, finally got that, I should say. And so we should be a lot more healthy and fresh coming into this TCU game, hopefully. Yeah. You have next question. Yeah. But man, next one, this one is the question I'm sure that is on many minds in the veneer football complex, which is can K-State contain Quentin Johnston? And again, we kind of alluded to this earlier. Keep him under 125. Then that's honestly com- compared to how he's been playing. That's containing. So uh, what, what do we think here is? Is it possible? He's not going to get erased, but I very much can see a world where we pretty much have a bracket on him at all times. And I can also see a world where, well, this kind of steps on the toes of another question later, but I, okay, we, I will see a bracket. He gets over a hundred yards. I, I don't think that there's much that we can really do about that just because of how often they scheme him open. So even if we he doesn't get the the deep ball thrown to him, he's going to get the ball on screens and then break a few tackles by virtue of being massive. So <laughs> I I don't know. I if the over if the over under was set at like one ten and a half, that's probably the number that I would start taking the under, but. I don't I don't know. It'll be interesting. What do you think? Um, I'm hopeful. Um, if we want to reference to last year, how KSA did against him. Um, the week prior to K-State, he went five catches for 113. Um, the week after K-State, he went five catches, 142, and a touchdown. The week of K-State, he had two catches for five yards last year. So granted, this year Quentin Johnston has been different. Um, he's been excellent, even compared to how he did last year. So I I don't have the expectation of holding Quentin Johnson to two catches for five yards unless we really focus on him and we're just going to force Max Duggan to beat us with the other guys in the room, which I still think we can do a decent job against. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I like the number of about 125 where if we keep him under 125, then I'm going to feel pretty good about that. Um, especially if he's not going off for touchdowns. I mean, because if it's like 100, but he gets like three touchdowns, then that's just Yeah, that's bad. a problem. Yeah, but I mean, as long as we can keep him from like big explosive breakaway touchdowns, things like that, I'm going to feel good. But I'm not going to this game with the expectation that he's going to have an easy... Uh, I'm like another two catch five yard performance like he did against us last year. Oh God, I, I, don't, did, I don't, I don't think that's realistic. If we do that, we're beating TCU by 30. <laughs> yeah. If that happens, yeah. All the calculus around this game changes. So yeah, but I do not anticipate that. No. Next question. Can the defensive line group knock Duggan off of his spot? This one's interesting to me, but I, I want to hear your thoughts first. Um, I have no idea what to think about this because TCU has given up nine sacks on the year and five of them were in one game, which seems kind of fluky. Um, And then they only gave up one sack to Oklahoma State. 
who has a very good uh, front line. I think the most experienced defensive line in all of college football. Um, I am hopeful that we can do it at least some. I think we're going to be left wanting more pressure from our defensive line in this game. Granted, their defensive line is not, or their offensive line is not incredible. So I'm hopeful, but we shall see. We're going to have to get a little bit more creative with some of our stunts and blitzes, I think, in order to bring more pressure. Yeah. I. If the question is contained to just the defensive line, I would say our best matchup is probably Nate Matlick up against Andrew Coker. And that's that's just giving Coleman versus Felix the respect it deserves. I still think that Felix, because he is who he is, he'll get his, he'll get pressure. He'll get pressure this game and he'll knock him off his spot quite a bit. I'm just not sure if he gets all the way home a lot. I, that being said, I would take another six sack performance. <laughs> I, would, I would simply accept that. I would 100% allow something like that to happen. Personally, at least, I, I I think that'd be a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but um, can K-State avoid the chunk plays that have made TCU so effective on offense? Maybe. <laughs> I, and not all of that is just Quentin Johnston. A lot of it is containing people like Tay Barber as well, making sure that you know he doesn't house a slant. But... Yeah. I think with how good this defense has been defending against the explosive play outside of busts of coverage, I think that this there's a good chance that we avoid they're going to get one or two. That's just how this TCU team operates. If we can limit them to below four, I feel great about our chances. So not entirely, but more than everyone else has been able to. Um. Yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way. I think that we can do a good job at forcing them to sustain a drive um, as opposed to um, living off of uh, big time chunk plays. Um, this defense has been really excellent this year, especially against the pass. Um, right now, I think they're a top 10 pass defense um, in the country in terms of opponent QBR. Which again, QBR is like kind of flawed, but regardless, they're... There's a flaw with every metric, I guess, but yeah, um, just why I, I hate numbers. Yeah, well, there's it's a fair reason to hate numbers, but <laughs> um, I, I, I hesitantly say, uh, yes, but then again, there's a lot of weapons to account for on this DCU offense, so the defense is going to be fully locked in. Yeah. Next question, which coverage does K-State opt for more often on defense? Do they hope to go with man and contain the weapons and make the receivers beat you or zone and make Duggan beat you with his brain or the scheme? Um, Great question. I would say I think we're going to do as much as possible to mix and create confusion. Um, in that regard, because I think we generally run a lot more zone than we do, man. Yeah. And I think that we're going to see closer to a balance in this game because Duggan is a smart quarterback um, and he's an accurate quarterback. I think the best thing that we can do is disguise coverage um, as best we can. And uh, 
try and not give too many tells for what we're doing, basically play to play. Cause I don't think doing one thing primarily for this entire game is going to be helpful. Yeah. Um, Cause snap to snap, we're going to have to be doing something different because like you said earlier, they run a lot of different schemes in the passing game that are meant to defeat a lot of different coverages. So the best thing we can do is mix and match what we're doing defensively and just hope that they don't get the perfect match with us. Yeah. What I will say is that Max Duggan's worst passing day on the year was up against Oklahoma State. And Oklahoma State did that by running a lot of his own and making Max Duggan read the field and, you know, making sure that (laughs) – because I I guarantee you where the ball is going when it's man coverage, it's got to be Johnston. Like that – so the key to this game for me is I I would expect a a heavy dosage of zone coverage. And I would expect them to not necessarily be exotic looks, but looks that at least makes Max Duggan hesitate and think for a second longer than he's used to. Because Max Duggan, yes, his processor has improved, but he's not patient. He wants that home run ball, and that's why he loves man coverage so much. That's why he loves one-on-one matchups, because that's how you get the home run ball. And Max Duggan is clearly a disciple of the chicks dig the long ball school. Because he he wants to throw it deep. He wants to make sure that he's getting the explosive plays. So I think the big key to this game will be playing a lot of zone coverage and not necessarily making sure that Duggan can beat you with his brain because he can, but making it to where he gets so impatient that he doesn't want to. That to me is why I think they'll lean towards zone. Yeah, and that's probably a fair perspective um, because man... Uh, against Johnston one too many times is going to burn you whether you like it or not. Um, unless we can just count on the alien that is Julius Brents to <laughs> lock it's, him down. Yeah, visiting Earth and just going to like bring a spaceship to take the ball out of the air. Goes to Mars. Uh, that would be our best hope as compared to just trying to cover him straight up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so moving on, does K-State slow down the game and try to limit the number of possessions that TCU gets? They should. I, I'm i going to be, you and I had this discussion. If TCU gets an equal amount of plays as us, we've lost. If TCU gets five fewer plays than us, we probably lost. If we end up getting 10 or 15 more plays than them, we've probably won the game. And I don't mean this in terms of pace. Because I don't think that this is a game that pace will benefit K-State at all. I think the game plan should be to try and... This has the potential for K-State to be boring. This has the potential to be a Colin Klein game where we're like, oh, he didn't get any any explosive play. Not any. He didn't get many explosive plays. Like, he didn't call a good game. Uh, no, actually, he, if he got 10 or 15 more plays and killed more clock and limited the possessions they get, he had a great game. Are you joking? But... Do you do you share similar opinions or do you think they, they'll go a different route and try to keep pace? Um, I think whatever pace you take, it have it has to be with the intention of keeping your offense efficient. I think that there is a world where K-State can have a similar number of plays, um, but they have to be a lot more efficient in finishing drives um, than they've shown us to be um, because that's been really the big uh, black mark on the play calling thus far um, and the offense as a whole is that 
when we're in a sustained drive, it seems that we really stall once we get to the opponent's side of the field. So um, if we're able to finish off drives at a regular rate and keep a high points per drive um, on sustained drives and not just rely on the explosive play, then that kind of changes things. But we're going to have to see that to believe that, I think, with this offense. Um, So whatever you can do to limit the amount of time TCU spends with the ball, uh, I think that's an effective strategy because we did do that with Oklahoma because they uh, they were getting a lot of yards because they were getting a lot of big chunk plays, um, but they also did not hold the ball very much. And that was kind of the uh, the, the goal uh, with um, the offense, it seemed. So we'll probably need to do something somewhere against TCU. Yeah. Next question. Can Kate, and this is a big one for me, can K-State's receivers separate versus a team that likes man coverage? And we'll talk about the second part after this first. What do you think? No. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm glad we're in agreement. <laughs> I I sincerely hope we can, but I don't expect our receivers to get more separation than they normally would. I think that there's going to be ways that we're able to scheme them open, but it's going to be like pulling teeth, it feels like. I think it I think a lot of the passing game is going to have to revolve around Deuce Vaughn um, and maybe some tight end stuff. Uh, but I think we're going to really struggle uh, getting receivers open one-on-one. Malik Knowles is really going to have to be dialed in uh, for this game because I think he has the best potential um, against this uh, man coverage by far because he has the um, ability and uh, stature for it. So we're... We're going to have to throw with anticipation more than we're used to if we really want to get the receivers involved. And I don't think that's something that they want to do. Yeah. And you, you touched upon the second part already, which is running back tight ends, passing matchups. But I, I think that this, they eventually get schemed open and I think it'll be more on shorter stuff because that, you know, other than Josh Newton, they kind of like playing off man coverage as opposed to more press man, which, you know, especially in the slot, they don't press the slot at all, ever. They don't do that. They know it's a bad idea, especially with, you know, having a safety on them. So I could see an argument where Philip Brooks gets a lot of separation, but on the outside, it might, it might be tough pickings. Uh, Deuce Vaughn should separate very well against these linebackers. They do not have someone who can match up with Deuce Vaughn in the passing game. So if Deuce is ever, and I mean ever, this season going to get a lot of receiving yards, it's going to be this game. But you have the final question. Uh, Can K-State stay consistent in the second half against a TCU team that has been great at second half adjustment? I hope so. Like Granted, in in two games that they've had to actually adjust in the second half, which is Okie State and KU. They've been good. They've been very good at making adjustments, especially in the Okie State game. The second half, I what I don't think Okie State scored a touchdown in the second half until late, did they? Or I think you're right. Field, it was all field. It, they didn't score much. Is the point? Yeah, a lot of the settling for field goals for Oklahoma State in the second half. Yeah, so I, I, this will be a complete game. This won't be a game that oh, a third quarter is over. I can go home and I can go visit kites. Like it's happy hour early. It, we're late, I guess, but <laughs> yeah. but it 
it's going to be a nail biter. This is going to be a nail biting game and it's going to be a coaching battle. These are both two exceptionally well-coached teams who have a lot of talent and to show my cards a little early, I, I still have us winning this game, but I think that this is a uniquely bad matchup for K-State. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm definitely worried about this, but um, K-State, if, if they can pick a week to finally play a complete game, this has to be the week, I think. Um, and we have seen Colin Klein adjust on the fly before. Um, so this is going to have to be the game. Um, that that happens, I think. Um, we, um, because TCU will adjust to what we are doing. They're an almost all certainty going to come in with a plan to subdue the quarterback run game. We're gonna have to find a way to open that up. Um, we're gonna have to do that early, so that way it's something we can come to later, I think. But either that or they'll pretend it doesn't exist and we just use it all game. We'll we'll see, I guess. Um, I would accept that outcome. I would as well. So now let's go into projected offensive and defensive MVPs. Let's start off with offense, and you can go first with this one. Yeah, I've got Adrian. Um, I think that he's going to really have to be on his best game yet again uh, for this one, because I think it's going to be slim pickings for the receivers in this one, like we've alluded to. So I think he's going to have to be looking Deuce Vaughn's way more than we have been a lot of the year. Um, I think Deuce Vaughn will... Um, I th- I, this will be a really good opportunity for him to boost his receiving numbers, which are a little lower than usual uh, for him so far. Um, I am optimistic uh, about that. Um, Adrian should be able to get some nice chunk plays as well on the ground. And I think if we're able to catch TCU and some zone coverages, we'll be able to get some nice plays as well. Um, so I'm rolling with Adrian uh for for me because i think that he he needs to have a clean and uh aggressive game uh for us to stand a chance here yeah and i i definitely see a world where it can be adrian but i'm actually going to go with deuce vaughn because not only can he bring a lot with his running back vision and you know he's pretty well handled tcu his entire career yeah i He's probably going to be the number one receiver in this day. Also, 9, 9 a.m., the fifth leading rusher in the Big 12 Conference. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> but, yeah, I I think Deuce – I think the big impact for Deuce is not only going to be in the running game but in the receiving game. He's going to have a complete game. If we are going to win this game, Deuce needs probably 100 yards on the ground, like 50 yards in the air, just because that's how poorly – they, they, every single team that we've had hasn't had someone who perfectly matches up with Deuce Vaughn. TCU doesn't have anyone who's in the same neighborhood or in the same stratosphere. If you put a safety on Deuce Vaughn, he's going to cook them. If you put one of their linebackers on, on Deuce Vaughn, he may as well throw them to the bottom of a volcano. Because they're they're gonna get Texas <laughs> toasted into the next existence. No, Ace, he didn't mention what would happen if they put one of their nose tackles on Deuce Vaughn. They may just try and body Deuce and get an OP, <laughs> like a DPI. I don't know, but yeah, I I think Deuce is the pick for me. And on defense, we actually match, which is Julius Brents, the Condor, not the Condor. Wait, 
Is it the Vulture or the Condor? I think it's the Condor. I, I just always say Echo Island in the Brent's Peninsula. So <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but I think Brent's not only because if we're ever going to have a true one-on-one with Quentin Johnston, it has to be Brent's. I love you, Echo, but no. <laughs> <laughs> uh it, it almost has to be Brent's and true one-on-ones. And even then he's gonna have to have he's gonna have to be everywhere. He's probably gonna have to stick his nose in and run support again. But I think Julius Brents is probably my pick for defensive MVP. Josh Hayes close second. Yeah, I'm going with Brents as well uh, for a similar reason. He is the guy that we have on our entire roster that I truly could see lined up on Johnston and not immediately break a sweat. And because he matches with him physically in terms of uh, build and whatnot, uh, he's been excellent this year um, and pass coverage for the most part. Um, he's going to have to be the guy, um, at defensive back, um, to, uh, stop Quentin Johnson or at least slow him down. Uh, so I think that he's an obvious pick. This could really be a breakout game for Julius if they try to force feed Johnston and he plays it well. Yeah. This, this is a draft stock game for Julius. (laughs) Yes. This, this could be a draft day highlight montage type of game for Julius Brents. If, if he plays it right. Yeah, like like he could come away from this game with a pick, a pass deflection, maybe, um, because the ball, if he's gonna be lining up on Johnston, the ball is gonna be coming his way a lot. So, we'll see. Yeah. Now, finally, score projections. I said earlier that this is a TCU is a team that K State is a uniquely bad matchup for, and I mean that going both ways because on defense, K State is a horrible matchup for TCU because of how good we are at limiting explosive plays and how much pressure we get. However, (laughs) (laughs) by the exact same token, if we, if we give them an extra possession, we die. I, if we, we need to steal a possession. I project that happening. I project Max Duggan getting impatient and making a bad throw. And if we take advantage of that, that's what we, we need to. We need to take advantage of that. So we need to play ball control. We need It's going to be a boring game. If K-State wins with the game plan, I think we're going to go with and think we should go with. Uh, caveat, I'm not a coach. So by all means, at me on Twitter if this is like a 40 to 50 game or something and call me a moron and we end up winning. But <laughs> it's, I, this is a game where we kind of need to be boring <laughs> in a yeah. sense. But... I have 27 to 21 cats. I have it being a sweaty up until the very end. Um, I've got 31 30 uh, K state. I think this game will come down to um, K state being able to do the opposite of what TC did to Oklahoma state, which is force some drives to end in field goals instead of touchdowns. Um, I think that's going to be the way to victory for K state. Um, I foresee this being a very tightly contested game. Um, if the cards fall correctly, this is possibly an Arlington rematch. Um, I I do have K-State, but this is going to be a very tight game, I think, one way or another. Yeah. You have any final thoughts before we say goodbye on what has been a, a very long but very informative episode? I'm very sad that this game ended up on Fox Sports 1 instead of Fox. 
because of the stupid MLB playoffs. I truly don't care about the playoffs at all. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's an absolute shame. It could have happened to anybody, but hopefully uh, we're able to make up for it with a good time slot the following week, which we don't know yet because we got put in a six day selection, but we'll see. Yep. But that pretty much wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow or contact the show, we are at Aggieville A Cats on Twitter. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C in cats. If you want to email the show, we are AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdwards00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, where you can find such designs as the staff-approved Doomtang Clan, Play Sandstorm Cowards, and Neon Alley Cats. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats. <laughs>